Hello and welcome to Further Up and Further In, a podcast. This is now episode 23 of the podcast, in which we will look at chapter 4 of Prince Caspian, titled The Dwarf Tells of Prince Caspian. And so last time we concluded chapter 3 with the arrival of Trumpkin, the dwarf, to the island where Care Paravel is and where Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy have found themselves. And at the end of chapter three, we discover that Trumpkin is going to lay out for them and for us as the reader, the story of Prince Caspian, that there are new players in Narnia that Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy are unaware of. And so we are going to launch into that backdrop and that story in order to uh, move to the present moment with, with what has happened in Narnia and why the children were summoned. And so chapter four is titled The Dwarf Tells of Prince Caspian. And this is where we get that in the beginning, once upon a time, the beginning of a new tale. Uh, and as Lucy said at the end of the last chapter, we love long stories. We love a good uh, tale, a well-told tale. And so that's what Trumpkin is launching in on narrating. And what he's going to uh, expose for us is uh, the vision of Narnia as it is in the modern world. And I say that because a major theme of Prince Caspian, and especially articulated in this chapter, is a love of the old things. A love of the old things. So when we say the modern world, uh, it's not hard to consider the world that we live in today. Um, A world of uh, high-speed internet, a world of uh, industry, mechanization, uh, a digital world, uh, a world of um, electronic relationship, electronic transaction, uh, a commercial world of capital and of consumerism. This is the modern world that we inhabit. And in many ways, Prince Caspian is going to be a uh, a landscape. This The world of Narnia as it is set in this novel will be a vision of Narnia reduced down to this sort of a sterile, tyrannical world, a world where the magic, the spirit, the uh, sense of wonder has been neutered, Uh, a world that uh, Devin Brown calls the silenced, disenchanted, spiritless Narnia. Uh, This is Narnia in black and white, uh, robbed of all of its color and all of its um, magic. And that is a world uh, that is under the tyrannical uh, government of Miraz. And so this is the part of the story where we'll see um, who Miraz is as the king of Narnia. He's not the rightful king, as we'll discover. Uh, but we'll also get uh, a portrait of who Caspian is, the rightful king, the one, the, the true heir. And we get uh, the story of their background. But Miraz's tyranny, his kingdom, and his Uh, totalitarian rule over Narnia is in direct contrast to this vision of old Narnia, the old things that, of course, Lewis loved so much. And uh, I believe we do as well. It awakens within us the same sort of thing that occurred a couple chapters earlier, where Peter rediscovers his ancient sword, and they descend down into the depths of Care Paravel, and they have this old affection reawakened when uh, they were once part of this golden age of Narnia. And it's at the the end of this chapter that Lewis even uses that phrase, the golden age of Narnia, this 
description of the way things were, the way things ought to be, the way things shall be once again when all is made right. And Jonathan Rogers uh, describes this sort of tyranny that Narnia is underneath now under the hand of Miraz as worse than the tyranny of the White Witch that we saw in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And he says this, This isn't the first time we've seen Narnia under a wicked ruler, but even the White Witch's hundred-year winter was a distinctly Narnian kind of tyranny, a tyranny by enchantment. The tyranny of Miraz is much more prosaic, enforced not by magic, but by murder and high taxes and repressive laws. All sense of wonder, everything worth wondering at, seems to have fled. So Roger's vision here of uh, Miraz's particular brand of authoritarianism, of uh, dictatorship, and of rule is worse because uh, this is a land where magic isn't merely perverted or twisted, but it is gone. It's eviscerated, evaporated from the scene. Um, And its replacement, I love how Rogers describes it as a more prosaic form of government, a much duller and more bland form of government that's uh, ruled not by magic, not by curses, but by murder and high taxes and repressive laws. And yet this is the world that Trumpkin is telling the children about, that all of this time later, Narnia has been reduced not to a different form of magic, but to the nightmarish vision of a magicless world. And by extension, I believe you and I seem to inhabit a similar world, a world where the magic and the joy and the grandeur of Eden, the world that Gerard Manley Hopkins envisions in his poem when he says the world is charged with the grandeur of God, it will flame out like shining from shook foil. That world, this electric, vibrant world of God's beauty and glory and holiness has now, due to the fall and due to the chaos of human history, has been reduced to rubble. We have this similar nightmarish vision as that of Miraz's tyranny. Uh, but the chapter, as I said, and the novel as a whole, emphasizes the love of the old things. And so there's this great hope that's introduced here in Trumpkin's story through Prince Caspian, through Dr. Cornelius, through this underground storytelling that we'll see depicted in this chapter, that uh, hope is that the old things may yet be resurrected, that old Narnia may yet rise again, that there may be a return to the way things were, the way things ought to be, and the way things shall be again. And it opens with um, the backdrop here with Miraz, uh, the king of Narnia, as Lewis says. Prince Caspian lived in a great castle in the center of Narnia with his uncle Miraz, the king of Narnia, and his aunt who had red hair and was called Queen Prunoprismia. Uh, so one thing to note here is that there is a usurpation that has occurred where Miraz is king, but he is not the rightful king, that he is the uncle of Caspian, who's the rightful heir. Caspian the 10th, he will be, who's in the long line of Caspians uh, that the Telmarines have had in their family history. And yet the uncle is the one seated on the throne. And already literary buffs might be able to see the parallel here between Prince Caspian and Hamlet, where there is a world Um, that has gone awry. Something rotten is in the state of Denmark, just as in the state of Narnia. 
and the heart of the rotten state is in the the wrongful rule of the wrongful king uh, that Hamlet's uncle Claudius in the play usurped the throne and is ruling falsely. And here in Prince Caspian, Miraz has usurped the throne as well and sits wrongfully in a position of leadership. Uh, but we open with Miraz and Prunaprismia, uh, which uh, Devin Brown in his book theorizes about the name Prunaprismia. He has this uh, he believes it's an allusion to one of Charles Dickens's novels with the phrase prunes and prisms. Um, but it's a wonderful name and it's the queen's name here, but the attention soon comes to Caspian himself. Who's a little boy at the time, um, who is being raised by a nursemaid who loves to tell him stories. And this is very much part of Lewis's, uh, autobiographical element here where he too loved, um, storytelling and had a, a wonderful relationship with his nursemaid. Um, but we get this uh, statement at the end of the opening paragraph that Caspian liked best the last hour of the day when the toys had all been put back in their cupboards and nurse would tell him stories. And this directly connects Caspian to Lucy from the last chapter where Lucy confessed that she loved a well-told tale. She had a heart for fairy tales. And here Caspian's favorite hour of the day was the last one where the nurse would tell him stories. So you can see how Caspian's right love for and right enjoyment of the old things is birthed out of storytelling, especially storytelling at a young age. And readers here can't ignore uh, Lewis's profound message of the primal place storytelling has in every culture. Rosaria Butterfield once said that a culture is comprised of its stories. That's what makes a culture distinct from another. That What is its stories? What does this culture value? Who are these culture's heroes, right? And for Caspian, this love of storytelling will blossom into a love of living his story rightly, assuming the throne, summoning the old kings and queens of Narnia with Susan's horn. And the rest of Caspian's story will be determined and bathed in this wonderful love of storytelling. Yet it's Miraz who cannot stand the stories that uh, Caspian is hearing. He asks Caspian if he'd like to be king one day, right? Uh, Miraz says he doesn't have any children, and so the kingdom might fall at some point to Caspian. And he asks Caspian if he'd like to be king, and Caspian's response is, I don't know. Uh, and this is another point that Brown helps us with, uh, that Caspian here acts as a foil to Edmund in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the White Witch uh, had confessed to Edmund that she had no children. Uh, wh right when she offers him Turkish delight, she says that she has no children and that she wants a little boy like Edmund to raise as a prince to take the throne. And here, Miraz is doing the same thing to Caspian. And yet Caspian, rather than being a power-hungry uh, traitor like Edmund ends up being in the first part of that story, Caspian says he doesn't know that uh, his love is not for power or for authority or for... Uh, monarchy per se, his love is for the old things of an ancient Narnia, an ancient world where there were kings and queens. And his love is for Aslan, the one through whom all things were possible in the old world. Lewis says this from Miraz, why I should like to know what more anyone could wish for. What else is there than being king? Caspian says all the same, I do wish. What do you wish? Asked the king. I wish, I wish, I wish, 
I could have lived in the old days, said Caspian. Beautiful statement. The repetition of I wish three times. I wish, I wish, I wish I could have lived in the old days. This reminds me of something Lewis says in Mere Christianity about how um, for a man who is on the wrong path, progress is going backwards. That if you're traveling down the wrong road, making progress would be turning around and starting over, going back to the source, choosing the right path. And so for Caspian here, a love of the old things is right, because if progress would be merely blindly advancing the world that Miraz has created, that's not progress. That's making things worse. And so a reawakening, a return to, a reformation back to the old ways, the old truths, the good things uh, that have been forced underground is progress because it would be a way of undoing all of the damage that Miras has done in this monochrome uh, wasteland of a kingdom that he has created. Caspian goes on to defend uh, all of the features of the old world that make it so wonderful. Oh, don't you know, uncle, when everything was quite different, when all the animals could talk, and there were nice people who lived in the streams and the trees, naiads and dryads they were called, and there were dwarfs, and there were lovely little fawns in all the woods. This is a, a beautiful uh, immersion back into the old Narnia that, of course, has been subjugated and, and banished to the margins by Miraz. But for the reader, it might recall the stories of the Old Testament. Uh, talking donkeys, serpents in the garden, um, a staff that turns into a serpent, uh, Philistine giants, the Nephilim witches of Endor, rivers of blood in the Nile. The, the stories of the Old Testament are stories of a magical, wonderful world governed by a God that was capable of great, grand things. It was not an easily explainable world. And so the hearkening back to fawns and dryads and dwarfs that Caspian declares it has to have some reminiscences for the Christian who reads of a similarly magical world and in the Old Testament, a book I would highly recommend on this subject, the sense of um, magic and wonder that lies at the very heart of God's creation is N.D. Wilson's book, Notes from the Tilt-A-Whirl. Fabulous book where he uh, goes at length to describe how this world is not manageable. This world that we live in, that God has created, is filled to the very brim with sparkling magic and unexplainable miracles. And that's the kind of world that Caspian's in love with that he is seeking to convince Miraz to uh, attend to. And Miraz says, that's all nonsense for babies, only fit for babies. You're getting too old for that sort of stuff. At your age, you ought to be thinking of battles and adventures, not fairy tales. And of course, we remember the dedication Lewis wrote to Lucy Barfield at the beginning of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where he tells Lucy one day she will be old enough to begin reading fairy tales again. That Miraz's world is a contrast to the one Lewis advocates. Uh, that Miraz says, you're too old for fairy tales. Lewis says, you're old enough for fairy tales now. Uh, because fairy tales remind us, they startle us awake to the majestic glory of God's world, the, the real world, not the lie of realism, as N.D. Wilson puts it, not the, the reductionistic, 
mechanistic world that uh, that Miraz uh, defends. Caspian says, but there were battles and adventures in those days, said Caspian. Wonderful adventures. And he begins detailing the white witch, the two boys and two girls that came from somewhere and killed the witch. They were made kings and queens of Narnia. Their names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. They reigned for ever so long, had a lovely time, and it was all because of Aslan. So Caspian excitedly recounts all of the plot points that the reader is familiar with already from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And the dramatic irony here is so thick because the reader knows that that's all true. We just read about it in the last book. Uh, but Caspian is not entirely sure if it's true. And Miraz certainly doesn't want it to be true or spoken of. Um, and there's an added benefit here knowing that uh, so much of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was modeled after Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tales, particularly his fairy tale, The Snow Queen. Uh, that uh, I recommend you go read The Snow Queen by Hans Christian Andersen. There's so much connection between that tale and uh, The White Witch and Edmund, where there's a, a, a snow queen with a sleigh, and she invites a young boy up into the sleigh to travel with her. It's, it's a beautiful parallel where you see Lewis's heart for fairy tale uh, deeply. Um, Miraz gets angry. He forces Caspian to stop talking about it. And you have this, this really interesting Orwellian uh, picture of Miraz. Of course, Orwell hadn't written, um, uh, had just written 1984. I'm sorry, at the time that Lewis wrote this. So there might be some parallel there between uh, 1984 and, and Miraz here. But Miraz says to Caspian, stop that noise, stop it, and never let me catch you talking or thinking either about all those silly stories again. As though Miraz was able to control Caspian's thinking, like Caspian would be guilty of thought crime. Uh, he goes on, there never were those kings and queens. How could there be two kings at the same time? And there's no such person as, as Aslan. And there are no such things as lions. And there never was a time when animals could talk. You see what's happening? Miraz is um, brainwashing Caspian by rewriting history, which is the center of the plot of 1984, where you can effectively erase something from being true by rewriting the record of it. And Miraz here is saying, uh, I don't want to catch you thinking about the old Narnia. There never was an old Narnia. There's no such thing as a lion. Uh, in the silver chair, the same tactic is used by the Queen of Underland, where she tries to manipulate Jill and Eustace and Puddleglum into saying there's no such thing as an overland. There's no such thing as Narnia. It's just a story you've made up. There's no such thing as a sun. There's no such thing as any of this. It's this powerful dystopian uh moment in Lewis where you see the effectiveness of a ruler in subjugating his people by uh, manipulation, propaganda, rewriting the record. Um, it's, a, it's a powerful rhetorical moment from Miraz there. Um, Miraz fires the nurse that had been telling all these stories. And um, in, a, in an ironic move, he hires Dr. Cornelius to be Caspian's new tutor. And the irony here is that Dr. Cornelius will be the one that actually awakens and informs Caspian of the truth of the old thing. So it's great that what Miraz meant for evil, <laughs> Lewis works for good. And we have Dr. Cornelius as the new tutor for Caspian that Miraz hires. Dr. Cornelius, we discovered later in the chapter, is half dwarf and half telmarine. 
so he is a representative of this old Narnia. And so he is uniquely qualified to inform Caspian of the truth, the truth of history. And uh, Devin Brown talks about how the relationship between Dr. Cornelius and um, Caspian it, it is it represents that classic pairing uh, like Arthur and Merlin or Luke Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi, the pupil and his master, where this is the uh, novel of formation. This is the coming of age, the moment where Caspian is transformed from a boy into the man that he's destined to be. And so Dr. Cornelius begins teaching him, uh, particularly history. And we get this wonderful description of uh, the historical record in Narnia. Dr. Cornelius says this, It was your highness's ancestor, Caspian I, who first conquered Narnia and made it his kingdom. It was he who brought all your nation into the country. You are not native Narnians at all. You are all Telmarines. That is, you all came from the land of Telmar far beyond the western mountains. That is why Caspian I is called Caspian the Conqueror. It's not too hard to see the parallels here that Lewis may be drawing between Caspian the Conqueror and William the Conqueror, the leader of the Norman invasion on Britain in 1066, where uh, the Anglo-Saxon clans were conquered by the French Normans through William the Conqueror. Um, that the Telmarines are not Narnians, but through the course of the last thousand years, they have ruled in Narnia because of Caspian the Conqueror, or Caspian the First. And now we have Caspian the Tenth in Prince Caspian. So the thousand years that have transpired between Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy in the Golden Age, and now Mirez's rule, uh, included this Telmarine invasion and conquering of Narnia. And Lewis, like Tolkien, had an affinity for the Anglo-Saxon world. Um, and at different points, Narnia and Middle-earth both may have been modeled after the pre-Norman vision of Britain, the Anglo-Saxon world of Arthur and so on. Uh, but Dr. Cornelius begins teaching Caspian. Caspian's love of the old things uh, does not abate. And then at one point, Dr. Cornelius wakes Prince Caspian up in the middle of the night. And I love this moment. Because he tells Caspian there's a particular astronomical moment in the stars that he wants Caspian to see. And he wakes Caspian up in the middle of the night. And they climb up the great tower together, um, which is this gorgeous moment of ascent. Where Dr. Cornelius, the master, and Caspian, the pupil, will ascend the stairs of the great tower to the very top. So that they might survey the stars and the heavens uh, very much like this ascent of Mount Parnassus. They move up to the realm of the muses, the realm of the heavenly. They move upward and elevate up for this particular lesson. And of course, this is the moment too where Dr. Cornelius will uh, teach Caspian about this particular uh, astral moment, but will also take this occasion in secret to inform Caspian of the truth of the old world. And so he awakens Caspian in the middle of the night and leads him upward to the top of the great tower in order to have this moment of education, this moment of truth and holiness. It's a beautiful vision of what true education ought to be as the leader guides the student up into the heavenlies to see the grandeur of the sky and in that setting to confidently and um, beautifully 
deliver the message of the old truths, the old stories, the old glory. And so he leads them up the great tower um, where they will see Tarva, the star Tarva and Alan Bill. Tarva is the Lord of victory and Alan Bill is the lady of peace. And he says, this is the moment. It only happens once every 200 years. So this is the only time Caspian will ever see it. The moment where these two stars move closely together. And uh, if you want a deeper exploration of how astronomy and stars and planets and the heavenlies figure in Lewis's work, I cannot recommend highly enough Michael Ward's book, Planet Narnia. That book is fantastic. And um, he treats all of these different depictions of the stars and the heavens and so on in Lewis's fiction, particularly in Narnia. Uh, but in this moment too, Devin Brown makes a connection between Dr. Cornelius and the Magi of the New Testament, the, the ancient Magus, which is where we get the word magic. Uh, and that the Magi study the stars and they see the patterns of it. And it's seeing the star in the sky, the Lord's star that leads them to um, Herod to inquire about the birth of a king. Um, so Dr. Cornelius's contemplation of the heavens and then his information uh, bestowed onto Caspian of what is true and what who he is and what's real. Um, it's not an accident that those things happen at the same time. This is a beautiful blending of education and magic at the top of this tower. So on the very top of the great tower, he tells Caspian this, Listen, said the doctor, all you have heard about old Narnia is true. It is not the land of men. It is the country of Aslam, the country of the waking trees and visible naiads, of fawns and satyrs, of dwarfs and giants, of the gods and the centaurs, of talking beasts. It was against these that the first Caspian fought. It is you Telmarines who silenced the beasts and the trees and the fountains and who killed and drove away the dwarfs and fawns and are now trying to cover up even the memory of them. The king does not allow them to be spoken of. Notice what Dr. Cornelius is saying. It's two parts to the speech. The first part is that, yes, there is an old Narnia. All the stories are true. All you have heard about old Narnia is true. Is the country of Aslan and of magic, of fawns and centaurs and so on. So the first part of Dr. Cornelius's lesson here is that the old Narnia is true. And for us as Christians, we might say the same thing of Eden. Eden is true. Uh, the glory of God is true. The glory of creation is true. But the second half of the story is just as true as well, which is that we tell Marines, we conquerors, the race of men have silenced the beasts and the trees and the fountains, that we fought against the old Narnia and killed and drove away the dwarfs and fawns and are now trying to cover up even the memory of them. So in this one lecture, you get a true vision of, of Christian education that we need to tell our children and our students that the old stories are true, that the magic is true and it never ends. Home is real. Home is real. And yet also that uh, the destruction of that, the conquering of that, the silencing and the neutering and the dispiriting of that is true. And it's on us. It was our race that did it. So Caspian's learning the truth of who he is. And he responds correctly. He says, oh, I do wish we hadn't. And, and I wrote in the margin of my book, me too. Oh, I do wish we hadn't done that. 
I wish the old Narnia remained. And yet the hope is that the old Narnia will return and we will move into that hope as the story progresses. But Caspian is being awakened to this lament, this this loss and this grief uh, that all of creation is groaning for the day of redemption, as Paul says. Um, and that it was our rebellion. It was our fighting against that, our uh, conquering that, that has led to the loss of the memory. Our attempt to cover up the memory of it even has led to the sterility and the barrenness and the emptiness of our current world. Dr. Cornelius removes his hood and exposes uh, his true identity to Caspian, that he is a representative of the old Narnia, at least in part. Caspian's shocked to see this, that Dr. Cornelius is half dwarf and half telmarine. Uh, and so he is um, he has one foot in that old world and one foot in the new, uh, which gives him uh, the remarkable position of the sage, the wise sage for Caspian. And later on, he tells, uh, Caspian says, it wasn't my fault, you know, about why Miraz's world and why the current world has gotten to the place that it's in. Caspian loves the old world. And he says, it wasn't my fault, you know. And uh, Dr. Cornelius launches into, in the last part of this chapter, one of the most glorious speeches in all of Narnia. And I, I think it takes uh, a moment here to really immerse ourselves into how powerful and how beautiful this speech is. So Caspian says, it wasn't my fault, you know. And Dr. Cornelius says, I'm not saying these things in blame of you, dear prince. You may well ask why I say them at all, but I have two reasons. Firstly, because my old heart has carried these secret memories so long that it aches with them and would burst if I did not whisper them to you. But secondly, for this, that when you become king, you may help us, for I know that you also, Telmarine, though you are, love the old things. So notice that first part of his speech here. He says, there are two reasons why I am telling you this. The first is because my old heart has carried these secret memories for so long that it aches with them and would burst if I did not whisper them to you. That What a compelling argument for parents, teachers, pastors, um, Christian believers of any occupation to burst with this aching and this longing and this yearning for the old things and the beautiful things, the love of holy things that we have, that we have to share. That's what compels Dr. Cornelius is that he has loved these things for so long that his heart aches with them. But the second reason is just as important. He says, the second reason I tell you is not just because my heart bursts with them, but because when you are king, you may help us. When you are king, when you are grown into the man that you will be, you may remember and help. He says, I know that you, Telmarine though you are, share a love of the old things. And that's what we must do as well. We must teach. We must raise our children. We must advance the gospel because when that generation is king, when they are grown, when they have become who God has made them to be, they will share that love of the old things and help us reawaken the world that has gone 
underground, the world that has been marginalized, the world that has been forgotten. We might awaken it when we have the power and agency to do it. Caspian says, I do, I do. And I close this episode with the last of Dr. Cornelius's glorious speech. Caspian asks if he thinks that, if Cornelius thinks that there are any talking beasts or dwarfs or fawns left. He says, do you think there are any? Any old Narnians left? Asked Caspian eagerly. Listen to Dr. Cornelius's beautiful moment here. I don't know. I don't know, said the doctor with a deep sigh. Sometimes I'm afraid there can't be. I have been looking for traces of them all my life. Sometimes I have thought I heard a dwarf drum in the mountains. Sometimes at night in the woods, I thought I had caught a glimpse of fawns and satyrs dancing a long way off. But when I came to the place, there was never anything there. I have often despaired, but something always happens to start me hoping again. I don't know, but at least you can try to be a king like the high King Peter of old and not like your uncle. What a powerful, moving, and beautiful moment from Dr. Cornelius, where his tenderness, his vulnerability, his honest searching for that old world defines him, his confession that it has driven him to moments of despair, and yet there is this abiding, eternal, aching, longing, and hoping for the old world to emerge yet again and to re be restored to a place of prominence in the right king and the right kingdom with the right king in place. And so he admonishes uh, Caspian to be a king like the high king Peter as they each, Caspian and Dr. Cornelius, both continue to search longingly for the old world that they love. So thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next time as we look at chapter five, as the story continues with the next chapter, Caspian's Adventure in the Mountains.